Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning as we open up God's Word. Uh, as Chris said, uh, my name is Kelly Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, if you are new to Trinity this morning, we are really glad that you are here. Uh, I would love to take a couple minutes to meet you after the service. I'll be uh, in the back out in the foyer. If you do know me and you have uh, never seen me wearing glasses, uh, I don't want you to be distracted this morning, you know, questioning, like, is Kelly kind of make some kind of statement this morning with his glasses? Um, you should know, you know, it's not because I want to look smarter, although that would be great. Um, it's not because I'm trying to be like Jesse more, um, although that would be great too. And it's not because uh, the title of our sermon today is, ironically, Seeing Clearly. <clears throat> it's actually just because I had a little issue with my contacts this week. Uh, more importantly, uh, my wife Nancy and I are celebrating our anniversary today. Uh, if you, if you, you guys are great encouragers. Thank you uh, for that. Um, if, if you count preaching as uh, celebrating your anniversary, then we're celebrating our anniversary today. Uh, actually, when I saw that I was preaching uh, on our anniversary, I, I, I looked back at my calendar. I was like, I think I preached on grounds at UVA on my birthday this year. So this really is how we celebrate special days uh, in our household. But I actually truly am uh, looking forward to opening up God's Word uh, and also excited about celebrating our anniversary at another time. Well, we are, uh, we're in the midst of a uh, seven-week summer series in the Psalms, uh, specifically the Psalms of Asaph, which are Psalms 50 and then 73 to 83. Uh, last week, Chris opened up uh, Psalm 77 for us, and the, se- the theme of this psalm was remembering. Uh, the theme of the psalm is, is looking back on God's faithfulness when we are disoriented in the present. And today, as you've already heard, we are looking at Psalm 73, a psalm that calls us not to look backward. It's it's not against looking backward. It's not against Chris's sermon last week, but it calls us to look upward. It calls us to look forward when we are disoriented in the present. And this is a psalm uh, that, that is for many Christians, like Mike, a beloved psalm. And I think that one of the reasons that people love this psalm, at least one of the reasons that I love it, is that it is just so honest. It's so transparent, even raw, as the, as the psalmist comes before God in prayer. Things that most of us would be embarrassed to say out loud, the psalmist puts down on paper to be shared in public worship. And in doing so, he helps us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with our God. And so please turn with me in your Bible or your order of worship for the reading of God's word. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. 
And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. We are obviously in the middle of vacation season here in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, Many of you, uh, by God's grace, have already been to, or in the very near future, are heading to a beach or to a lake or to the mountains for maybe a long weekend, maybe even a week. I'm going to go out on a limb here, uh, but I would guess that none of you are going to a beach or to a lake this summer that advertises its murky grayish brown waters. Or that advertises, come to our beach where you can only see a couple inches below the surface. Now, of course, this does describe the uh, Atlantic coast that many of us go to and cherish. Uh, But the murky grayish water is not why we go, right? On the other hand, the so-called Crystal Coast in North Carolina is one of the very few Atlantic beaches that actually does advertise their clear waters. In fact, just the second sentence uh, on the official Crystal Coast website talks about their beautiful, clear waters. On the Smith Mountain Lake website, they say that, and I quote, Smith Mountain Lake is quite clear by East Coast and Southern Lake standards. Kind of, kind of lowering the bar there. The bottom is typically visible in six to seven feet of water. People floating in coves near the dam are often struck by how visible their feet are. <laughs> now, whether or not this spectacular claim is true, we know that, that many people will travel great distances to get to clear waters, right? No one would, would drive 12 hours to the Gulf Coast if it looked just like the Atlantic. Honeymooners and others pay top dollars to get to islands with pristine, clear water. And without the clear water, hardly anyone gets on that plane. Just two months ago, Travel and Leisure had an article titled, 13 Places Where You Can See the Clearest Water in the World. An article I found by doing a quick search that many of us have probably done at various times for pristine beaches. 
Well, whether it's, it's clear waters or, or clear mountain views, we value seeing clearly when we get out of town, when we go on vacation. We, we know that there is, is beauty that we miss when we can't see clearly. I want to ask the question this morning, do we also value seeing the world clearly with the eyes of our hearts? Our psalm moves us this morning to see the immeasurable, immeasurable value of seeing the world and seeing God clearly. It begins with a very short summary statement in verse 1 where the psalmist proclaims what he knows to be true about God. The water is clear for, for just a moment in verse 1. But then he takes us on this dark journey of the soul into the places that his heart has recently been. Places of intense bitterness, of, of disillusionment, of despair. The waters are murky and he can hardly see God, if at all. He has a severely obstructed view of God. Finally, there's this, there's this turning point where, where his vision is restored. And even though the psalmist's world has not changed, his heart is changed because of what he sees. And so this morning, as we move through this psalm, I, I want us to think about clear vision and where we see this theme of seeing God clearly throughout Scripture. And then we're going to dive into the murky waters of the psalmist's obstructed vision. And finally, we'll talk about restored vision. And so first, what do we, what do we mean by, by clear vision? Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Why is God good to those who are pure in heart? Well, there is an objective reality to this truth that, that those who live out of a pure heart, that those who live in the world as God designed us to live in this world will experience the blessing of God. There is blessing for obedience. And yet one of the things that this psalm is going to do is to show the holes or weaknesses in a simplistic view of God's blessing in a fallen world. A world in which obedience sometimes, even frequently, results in suffering instead of material or relational blessing. And a world in which God's blessing is, is often delayed. Certainly the, the, the fullness of God's blessing is always delayed. It is yet to come. But there's also a, there's also a subjective reality to the statement that God is good to those who are pure in heart. And given the rest of this psalm, this is probably what the psalmist is emphasizing here, that God is always good, but only those who are seeing God in the world and the world clearly through a pure heart are able to subjectively see and find joy in the objective and constant goodness of God. This is an important theme that, that we see running throughout Scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, perhaps with Psalm 73 in mind, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, just one chapter later, in Matthew 6, Jesus actually employs the metaphor of human eyesight as a way to describe the desires of the heart, to describe what we love or, or what our hearts are seeing and treasuring. When he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
In other words, how we see the world and, and what we set our eyes on is of immense importance to Jesus. When the Lord gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the first commandment literally reads, You shall have no other gods before my face. And so we have in this first commandment uh, this image of a false god or an idol that is not only an affront to the living God, but also one that obscures a clear view of the face of God, that prevents us from seeing him clearly. 800 years later, after the Ten Commandments have been given, 800 years later, the prophet Ezekiel picks up on this image when he describes his fellow Israelites in Ezekiel 14 as, as taking idols into their hearts and placing the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. And so Ezekiel highlights for us that, that any idol before the face of God is also an idol before our face. It's between our face and his blinding us to him and causing us to stumble. And so it's not surprising that the psalmist says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. His vision is obstructed. Obstructed vision. I think that most of us can relate. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. About a week ago, I finished listening to a book called 40 Autumns. Some of you may have read it or listened to it. It's a great listening book, by the way. But it's the memoir of a family's life behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany. And at one point, it describes how many of the East German high officials lived in luxury, eating foods and goods from West Germany and from all over the world while the masses scraped by and, and, and lived with subpar East German products. And it's easy to see how an East German citizen during the Cold War could relate to the cries against the wicked in our song. But most of us in this room do not face this, this kind of blatant evil or wickedness on a daily basis. And yet we still manage to make the envy described in this psalm, a common struggle, don't we? Envy of, of tangible things like perfect homes, vacations, vocations, nest eggs, wardrobes, but maybe even more so intangibles like intellectual or academic respect, professional esteem, social connectedness, time for leisure. We envy people or, or families who do not seem to have any health issues or financial concerns, who seem to live carefree lives, who seemingly, seemingly spend every summer and spring break and winter break doing the coolest things ever, who seem to succeed in everything they do. We may not see the people we envy as overtly wicked, as described in verses 6 through 11, prideful and violent, overflowing with folly, scoffing and speaking with malice, threatening oppression, speaking directly against God. Maybe we do see these things, uh, and maybe there are hints of these things, but more likely for most of us, it may just be a neighbor or an acquaintance who doesn't seem to care about God, who, who doesn't follow Jesus, 
And yet, at least from the outside, their lives seem to be going quite swimmingly. And and we begin to think the self-righteous thoughts of verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For my life does not seem to be going nearly as well as theirs. I've got daily problems and concerns and weaknesses that they don't seem to have. It may even be our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we envy. People in this room. And depending on our own personal style of envy, we may critique them in our hearts in an attempt to place them in the unworthy category. Or we may place them on a pedestal. Either way, our envy obscures our view of God and his goodness. I'm going to be really honest here. Uh, when, uh, when we first moved to Charlottesville, we were a young family, third child on the way. Um, I had grown up outside of Washington, D.C. We had just lived in this cool little town outside of Philadelphia for four years. Um, not exactly off the beaten path places. But when we got here, I don't remember ever having seen so many put-together families and people as we did in Charlottesville. Maybe I'm the only one who's seen this. I mean, this town is full of beautiful, gifted people. UVA is full of beautiful, gifted people as well. It, It just is. And I found myself regularly feeling this sense of pressure to measure up or to be better. I would catch myself bringing people down a notch in my mind. And while I felt it most acutely uh, for the first few years, and I, my heart goes out to, to folks just moving um, to this wonderful place, um, as someone mentioned to me earlier this week, and I agree, it, it, it doesn't go away. It may change form, it may take on more subtle forms, but it doesn't go away. C.S. Lewis agrees. Speaking to a group of, of students at King's College, University of London, about 80 years ago, Lewis spoke of a prominent form of envy that he calls the desire to be in the inner ring. And he said to that group of students, to a young person just entering on adult life, although it applies to us all, he says, the world seems full of delightful intimacies and confidentialities, and he desires to enter them. But if he follows that desire, he will reach no inside that is worth reaching. The true road lies in quite another direction. And so Lewis warns, unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. If you do nothing about it, if you drift with the stream, you will in fact be an inner ringer. I don't say you'll be a successful one, but whether by pining and moping outside rings that you can never enter, or by passing triumphantly further and further in, one way or the other, you will be that kind of man or woman. Whether it's the next inner ring of elites or an inner ring of those who scoff at all those other people trying to be elite, Lewis affirms that no matter how successful one may be, the world always has on offer another inner ring that we can covet. I want you to listen to... uh, I'm quoting more than you're supposed to do in a sermon, but I think it's really good stuff. (laughs) I want you to listen to a few lines from 2nd century Roman Emperor uh, Marcus Aurelius' personal meditations, uh, which he never expected anyone to read, uh, much less to be quoted to a few hundred people, uh, but nevertheless, uh, I think offer some really helpful insight into envy. 
He says to himself, and keep in mind that this person is or is about to become the most powerful person in the Western world. He says to himself, don't waste the rest of your time here worrying about other people unless it affects the common good. It will keep you from doing anything useful. You'll be too preoccupied with what so-and-so is doing and why and what they're saying and what they're thinking and what they're up to and all the other things that throw you off. Later, he questions himself. Is it some inborn condition that makes you whiny and grasping and obsequious? Makes you complain about your body and curry favor and show off? And leaves you so turbulent inside. And finally, in another place, he asks himself, What if you can't stop prizing other things? Meaning things besides the intrinsic goodness of our work. He says to himself, Then you'll never be free. Because you'll always be envious and jealous. Afraid that people might come and take it all away from you. Plotting against those who have them. Those things you prize. People who need those things are bound to be a mess. And bound to take out their frustrations on the gods. I read all of that because because you can feel the former emperor's weariness and struggling with envy in his heart. The words of, of verse 16 of our psalm seem to apply, but when I thought how to understand all of this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Wandering in the world and in our thoughts with obstructed vision is a wearisome task. It's the life of an embittered spirit and a pricked heart, as verse 21 says. As a more modern writer, Joseph Epstein, puts it, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. (laughs) Some of you may have heard before. Thankfully, our psalm does not leave us there. But our psalm points us forward to restored vision. Restored vision. What is it that restores the psalmist's vision and revives his soul? What is the solution to the constant mind games of envy? Is it considering that that the lives of the people that we envy probably aren't that great after all? I mean, sure, they might have an amazing job and financial security, but you know what? I I bet their home life is a mess. I, I I bet they're struggling at home. This is actually the first suggestion in dealing with envy from a recent article in the Atlantic. To consider the ways that people's lives may not actually be as great as they look. This is terrible advice. (laughs) The problem is it's still looking sideways. It's still looking to the right or to the left. And our view of God is still obscured. It's, It's not looking up. The psalmist's vision is restored only when he enters into the sanctuary of God. And what would he have seen in the sanctuary, in the temple of God? Verse 17. When the Old Testament, the the temple in Jerusalem was the place of God's special presence with his people, his localized presence with his people. It's the place where God revealed himself to his people. First, it revealed his holiness. The the entire layout of of the temple was designed to reveal the holiness of God with the holy of holies room at the very center which contained the ark of the covenant inside of that were the ten commandments revealing his holy character it was the place where only the high priest could go and that only one time per year equipped with all 
the right sacrifices for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And so the psalmist first would have seen not only his own need for God's mercy as he went into the temple, but he also would have seen that pursuing a pure heart and walking in the ways of the Lord is actually not in vain. Because as he says in verses 18 to 20 and 27, God's holy judgment is real. His good and holy judgment is real. He will indeed put an end to godlessness. The godlessness that the psalmist sees all around him, he will indeed put an end to it. Second, the psalmist would have been reminded of God's nearness, of his forgiveness, of his sacrificial love as he entered the sanctuary. The temple was the place of God's special presence with his people precisely because it was the place where the sacrifices for sin that God had commanded were offered. Our sin, not least of which our envy, blocks our view of God, and in the end of it is death. It leads to death. But in his kindness, God provided sacrifices in the Old Testament to temporarily serve for his people as substitutes in death for all who trusted in him. And we see the psalmist's assurance of this nearness and love in verses 22 to 24. In verse 22 he's able to boldly confess the depths of his sin because he's confident of the Lord's mercy. He doesn't just name a few sins. Instead, he cries out to God, I was like a brute beast before you, driven by competition, driven by animal instincts, survival of the fittest. I was a brute beast. He confesses a godless perspective on life. Do we know that we can be this honest with God because of his mercy. And because of his assurance of God's mercy made known through the sacrifices, in verses 23 to 24, we read that that he knows that God's continually with him, holding his right hand both now and beyond the grave. And finally, in the sanctuary, the psalmist would have seen the beauty, sufficiency, and abundance of God. The the temple furnishings of gold and, and the images of trees and budding flowers carved on the temple walls reflected the Garden of Eden. It it was a restored miniature Eden, and it was God's token pledge and promise of an entirely renewed and restored creation. And so seeing this, the psalmist can say in verses 25 to 28, even in this broken world, there's nothing I desire besides you. You're my portion, God. It is good to be near you. You are my refuge. So I am not ashamed to tell of your works. So what does this mean for us? What do we do when our vision is obstructed by envy? When God's face seems hidden to us? Well, this this psalm tells us to go to the temple and to have a look around in order for our vision to be restored. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, and he is our temple. And so the application of our passage today is very simple. It's to look on Christ. It's to go to Christ and have a look around. Every time we find our vision getting clouded, every time we find our eyes wandering to the right or to the left, we need to look on Christ, our temple, our sanctuary. The psalmist saw shadows of the holiness of God in the temple. But when we look on Jesus, we see the radiance of God's glory 
in the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1 tells us. The psalmist saw the shadow of God's forgiveness and the sacrificial love through an altar where where the priest made regular sacrifices. But when we look on Jesus, we see the priest who offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And so he sat down at the right hand of God, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The psalmist saw golden furnishings and carved images of trees and flowers pointing to the beauty and to the abundance of God's restored creation. But when we look on Jesus, we see the one who came calming the chaos of the sea, multiplying bread for the hungry, healing broken bodies, and even raising the dead. The psalmist was reminded of God's presence with his people in the temple and perhaps experienced that presence in a special way that day. But through the spirit of the risen Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit or down payment guaranteeing what is to come and who lives inside of us, we experience the continual presence of God with us. And so we can say with the psalmist, In verses 25, 26, and 28. And I believe we can say it with even greater confidence. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works One last way that I want us to see the good news of Jesus in this psalm. And that's this. That we can say those words and mean them because Jesus lived them out for us. He ran into lots of people with worldly power and riches who did wear pride as their necklace. Who wore violence as a garment. Who scoffed and spoke with malice directly at him who threatened oppression, who set their mouths against the heavens. But he kept his his gaze fixed on his heavenly father, not looking to the right or to the left, not allowing pride or envy to get in his way of his view of God, trusting day by day in his heavenly father as his refuge, as his comfort, as his all-sufficient portion and strength. And because he did, we have died with him and we live with him. Because he lived it out perfectly, we may be united to him in faith. Die with him, live with him, rise with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus, our temple, our sanctuary. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came into this world to reveal yourself, to reveal the Father, to reveal the Spirit to us, to make yourself known to us. Lord, would you give us eyes to see you? Lord, would you make us a humble church? Lord, on our own, we will always be seeking um, to compare ourselves, to measure up. Lord, help us to look to you um, that we may find our comfort, 
our source, our strength, and you alone. Lord, would you make us a humble church that experiences your joy because we are seeing you. And help us point each other to you. Help us to point our eyes, one another's eyes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.